Welcome to the Post-Brexit Europe podcast. This is a product of the Bridge Network, recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. My name is Ian Cooper. This episode is a seminar featuring four distinguished speakers, all of whom are involved in large-scale Horizon 2020 research projects. Three of those projects are specifically focused on differentiation in the European Union, which is also a central focus of the Bridge Network's research program. In order of speaking, they are first, John Eric Fossum of ARENA, Center for European Studies at the University of Oslo, and coordinator of EU3D, Differentiation, Dominance, Democracy. Second, Pier Domenico Tortola of the University of Groningen, and coordinator of EUIDEA, Integration and Differentiation for Effectiveness and Accountability. Third, Susan Rotman of Oziegen University, Principal Investigator for RESPOND, Multi-Level Governance of Mass Migration. And fourth, Bruno de Vita of the European University Institute and one of the leaders of INDIVU, Integrating Diversity in the European Union. And the first voice that you will hear is the chair, Ian McMenamin of Dublin City University. This seminar was recorded at the kickoff conference of the Bridge Network last October. It is called Different Perspectives on Differentiated Integration. Here it is. I'm delighted to be at uh, yet another great event in our school, another interdisciplinary event, and uh, another Brexit Institute event. I, um, if you don't know me, uh, there are two things you need to know. One, that I'm a very nice person, and two, that I'm a vicious timekeeper. Um, so that, I think that's why Federico has chosen me to chair uh, this panel. Uh, because he has another panel directly after this one with uh, no break for you. So I'll be giving uh, each of our speakers 15 minutes and then we should have a good time then for questions and answers after all. Uh, I'm not going to upset anybody by departing from the noble tradition of going in order of the program. Uh, so I'm very pleased then to ask uh, John Eric Fossum of Arena in the University of Oslo uh, to get us started. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be I'll here. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'm one, okay? Okay. Now, what I will do is I'll literally run you through this uh, project, this uh, Horizon project um, that we started in February. So I'll say something about the orientation and um, design and also the participants of the project as we proceed. So we started being, of course, uh, faithful to the uh, call. So of course, the call was um, specific, but it was also very well written that we applied for last year. It was a, calls come in different qualities. This was a very good call. Um, so it was not difficult to, to get make sense of, of, of the, uh, the project orientation. So basically, the point of departure is the EU has become more differentiated, and they asked how much differentiation is necessary, conducive, sustainable, and acceptable. And we're trying to respond to these questions in this uh, project. Now, of course, the, the timing, I mean, the, the, the topicality of this is obvious because of, of Brexit, the question of different uh, disintegration, you see the threats also 
other parts of, of the EU is facing other uh, pressures to um, to roll back uh, integration and so forth. So that element itself has come in and therefore served as a significant antidote to those who were talking about differentiated integration because now we have a prospect of movements in another direction. Now, the, the, the key though for our project is that in order to understand properly the challenges that Europe are fa uh, is facing, we, we, it's not enough to look at differentiation. And I'll, I'll try to explain why. But we need to think about the, the relationship between differentiation, dominance, and democracy. Because they are related. There are problems associated with each, but also potentials, at least with differentiation and democracy. So, so, so this is a starting point, that there are three basic <laughs> challenges. And I'll say a little bit about these challenges, and then I'll proceed to, to explain the, uh, the uh, uh, project itself. So of course, you all know that this constitutional democratic deficit, and also I would say it's been exacerbated by the shift in decision locus more towards the European Council, uh, towards more informality and higher levels of arbitrariness and so forth in the EU system. And therefore, um, the, the, the role and status of EU constitutional law itself is, is more uncertain. And of course, the, the, the financial crisis especially had a significant uh, negative effect on parliaments that were excluded from, or at least also had to face up with processes and so on, where they had little chance to be properly informed and give a proper direction to the processes. Uh, that's normal with crises, but the question, of course, is whether this can be uh, rectified after, after the crisis. And that also brings up the idea of dominance, and, and, and I'll explain this dominance notion a bit more carefully. It is a debate in philosophy, basically a kind of neo-republican uh, understanding of dominance. So it, it's not merely about power politics, but it is, a, it is uh, some problems that are, uh, some issues that are problematic for proper <coughs> legitimate governing uh, are often lumped under the notion of dominance. It sounds very ominous, but it, it's not quite as ominous as, as it might, might sound. Um, because, I mean, we have, we are living, I mean, Weber's understanding of course, is that you live, hierarchy is in a sense dominance, and the question, of course, is it legitimate? Can you live under systems of domination that are legitimate? This was kind of Weber's take on this. So, so I'm trying to dramatize this a bit, but um, but the question, of course, is whether this is un un inadequately authorized by democratic means, basically. Um, and this is these problems are exacerbated by the fact that the EU itself, the status. Um, the understanding of the system itself is contested. So therefore the benchmark by which to assess what's going on itself is a matter of contestation. Um, and on, on top of this, of course, the, the very diversity. The, the fact that the EU is unprecedented in terms of a system coming together with all the differences that we have in the member states. All federal states, after all, are institutionally uh, quite harmonious or, or homogeneous in structures uh, across levels and so on, with small variations. I know people can take notes on this and talk about asymmetrical federations and so forth. However, the EU is exceptional in its diversity across uh, uh, different uh, dimensions. Um, and um, so you could say that, just to try to illustrate this, that the earlier stages, people were thinking about if it wasn't the reality on the ground, but a lot of the debate was about unified integration. But it has been moving in several um, directions. And this dotted line there is, uh, 
if the EU actually is to be unravel to unravel completely. Of course, that's much less likely now than than at the earlier stages of the financial crisis. But I think that the debate has shifted towards also differentiated integration and differentiated disintegration. Brexit is a case of differentiated disintegration. It's not going to be a full disintegration or, or, or full dislodging of the UK from the EU because the UK itself is already Europeanized and is never going to be able to do away with this. However much the Farages are trying, um, cannot do, uh, should not do, um, and so forth. Uh, and um, they will also have to find an arrangement with the EU as long as the EU exists, however tortuous that will be. But, it, but they will have to. They live in the same place and they'll have to wake up and find a way of dealing with this, despite the rhetoric. And this is how the European Commission itself has depicted Europe with the different modes of affiliation, showing the institutional forms of differentiation. And we've heard something about language in the previous panel, and that can be added to this. So the forms of differentiation are, are multiple. So the EU itself is using its own structure, makeup, to deal with all kinds of issues. I think to a larger extent than other polities, the EU itself is using its own legal and institutional system to deal with issues because it has a more limited uh, policy and institutional repertoire to deal with this than states have. And therefore, this is a response to the diversity in Europe that we see. Um, but it also shows the EU's way of accommodating and trying to deal with the various forms of, of, of difference and diversity. And you also see a core there, of course. Um, so our project starts from the recognition that all political systems are differentiated. Modern political systems are deeply differentiated, especially in functional terms, but all complex multi-level systems also in territorial terms. So differentiation is not a problem <laughs> unto itself. In fact, democracy relies on differentiation. If you do not divide, I mean Montesquieu's notion, if you do not divide legislative, executive, and judicial powers, there will be an enormous de-differentiation, concentration, and therefore dominance. So differentiation is an essential element to sustain democracy. The knowledge differentiation we have in the different ministries, uh, in the different sectors, and so on, is an essential element of governing complex societies to bring knowledge to, to bear on democracy. So differentiation is a necessary requirement for sustaining democracy. The question, of course, is the forms of differentiation. So there are some forms that cause dominance. So we need to get theoretical tools to differentiate, to, to find out the, the conducive, democ democratically conducive forms of differentiation, and those that veer towards dominance. So that's a sorting mechanism that we're really interested in in doing so that's that's our, basically our, our objective it's an extremely uh, ambitious objective and the question is if we can possibly make a general theory or whether everything will be contingent to circumstances so on but anyway we're embarking on this and see how far we get in the project that's basically the the overarching goal and then we just break this down in different types of sub goals to get the framework in place of course we try to zoom in on certain forms of differentiation that are particularly problematic we try to do something on historical uh, background, and we compare the EU with other two types of systems, both uh, federal states, especially contested federal states, and now also the US, uh, and um, international organizations to get a broader repertoire of systems to look at where the main differences and similarities are. We, uh, 
also examine popular perceptions to get the bottom-up understanding of how people see the system. We develop a database on future of Europe reform proposals. So we have a, a quite elaborate design to develop and identify proposals that we will be examining in more detail in order to get a, a database and, and proposals that we can assess according to the type of framework that we have. And of course we want to engage with stakeholders uh, and civil society. So the key concepts are differentiation, which is different from differentiated integration because it's not only more encompassing, but it brings in the fact that states themselves are differentiated. The input to the EU itself is differentiated. Integration in the EU is differentiated in its own very nature. So that's, this is a very institutional perspective, by the way, but it's, it's clear when, when you lift up policies to, to a higher level and establish institutions that are complex, then you obviously will have differentiation built into this. Dominance is from this neo-Republican literature, especially associated with Philip Pettit and uh, Ian Shapiro and uh, Richard Bellamy. Uh, this is about subjection to arbitrary forms of ruling. So it's about illicit forms of governing, basically. That's how you think. But we also bring this in a more unintended manner. We are interested in unintended forms or non-intended effects of, of actions and so on. So we're not only looking at powering them with a specific motive to dominate. We're looking at the fact that things and policies can have negative effects, even if they were not intended to be. So that's part of the repertoire we are making, because we're not imputing any kind of dominance intention to the EU. It doesn't have that. It's a, the obverse, in fact. The EU was set up to prevent dominance by tying states down in legal regulations and so forth, and to, and to nullify power relations. So that was the intention of the EU. However, policies have effects. And we see distributive effects and other things that are negative. And therefore, we need to find this out in order to see what forms of differentiation are particularly problematic. So we link it to differentiation. And of course, democracy is about citizens governing themselves through hierarchical means, legal means, of course. So um, I'll just skip this and say a little bit more on the practical, uh, on, the, uh, uh, on, on the structure itself. So we have. Actually, I'm going to go in and say something about the um, work itself. So we're trying to uh, say something in the first work packet about this uh, analytical framework. This is an ongoing process. It's, you can call it uh, ambitiously uh, roles reflective equilibrium, going from principles to practice and practice to principles. And this has to go on from throughout the whole process in order to develop that type of framework. We cannot actually set this out in the beginning. We really have to work it out as we go through. Second is the more empirical work, which is on internal differentiation. So we want to try to zoom in on certain forms of, of differentiation that are particularly problematic. And we focus mainly on the Eurozone crisis and the refugee crisis. And, um, and see, and, and of course, the EU's governing system after the crisis, how that has shifted and become less accountable in that sense and, and less conducive to democratic governing. Uh, and then we also have external differentiation. So we, on the one hand, provide an overview of the principles and procedures guiding the EU's relations with non-members. So that's an overview of the whole panoply of, of relations we do. And then we want to zoom in on some of these and discuss whether they are marked by dominance. 
So, for instance, since I'm from Norway and uh, have spent quite a lot of time uh, on, on Norway's affiliation with the EU, it's interesting to ask. And it's, since there's also figured in the UK debate, is this a mode of domination? Is this a self-inflicted mode of, of subjection to EU rule without any kind of say? Can that qualify as domination? Or is it something else? After all, many of the laws that we are incorporating are democratically authorized by the EU. Does that make a difference that it is democratically authorized by another constituency when you incorporate them in your own constituency? So how, what kind of theoretical mileage can you get on looking at this type of of affiliation, which is a voluntary form, but it also is one where you are subject to taxation without representation. So that has a historical ring, doesn't it? And uh, that, of course, then also comes in, uh, Brexit comes in in this too, of course, um, as uh, one of the themes that, and, and what you can have, uh, ends up with in terms of what that em em entails. Um, we do the more bottom up, and here is a database uh, on these um, uh, what we're looking for. <coughs> so we try to set out um, um, narratives of the EU constitutional makeup, and then we try to look at uh, and and in in the different proposals and so on uh, how these are reflected and what that entails for our understanding of dominance and democracy. And then we hopefully we'll end up with some recommendations. Thank you. Thanks very much. So next we have Claire Domenico Tortola of the University of Groningen. I have to say right off the bat that my presentation is much more shallow. <laughs> I'm not going to give you as many details. So John Eric, I think I, mean, I feel a bit embarrassed now going <laughs> after after your presentation. But one of the reasons I have a good uh, good reason for that is that I am actually um, an active, of course, participant in my project, but I'm not the coordinator, so I don't um, on some things I don't you know I don't in general have the um, all the details of the full picture, but I'll try to do my best here. So our um, project is called, as you can see, EU IDEA, and it's one of the you know three projects on uh, differentiated integration that. Uh, are represented here today, uh, and uh, which is uh, coordinated by uh, the Institute of International Affairs in Rome. Uh, I'm here from the University of Groningen, uh, so I'm one of the members of uh, the consortium. Let me uh, give you, I'm going to give you uh, a few basic uh, pieces of information about our project, and of course, later on, uh, if you have questions, I can answer them to the extent of my uh, uh, of my ability to do so. Uh, first of all, let me give you uh, the basics of our consortium. As you can see, the project will run for three years. You know, it started in January 2019 and will run until <laughs> the end of 2021. And it's <coughs> conducted, uh, and it, it puts together 15 ins different institutions. So it's, we are quite a big uh, consortium, as you can see, uh, and we are quite widespread in terms of countries. You know, we have 13 countries, so almost a one-to-one -one correspondence, um, of which four uh, non-EU members, as you can see. Um, although we're chatting with Federico yesterday, uh, we don't have, unfortunately, an Irish member, but that's, <laughs> we'll fix that as soon as we can. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> uh, um, uh, we are, uh, you know, we have, of course, uh, being this, uh, uh, this being a, a big consortium uh, with a lot of 
different moving parts uh, in our research, uh, there will be a lot of, uh, let's say, sub-goals in the research project. But to the extent that we can identify some of uh, the guiding goals of EU IDEA, I would say there's four of them. Um, in, in the first place, we would like to uh, try, and, uh, uh, try and be um, a bit innovative on the conceptual and theoretical uh, level of differentiated integration. Uh, we will be doing so in a bunch of initial uh, working packages uh, by examining the meaning of the concept of DI, the implications, the feasibility and desirability. So we're going to work both, both from a positive and very much also from a normative point of view. You can see the definition that we are adopting about DI and that's, as you can <laughs> see, it's quite broad. Um, um, perhaps we can go back to that. Uh, later because it does have implication for the kind of work that we will be doing. Uh, second and more, let's say, uh, traditionally from a political scientist uh, point of view, which I bring here, uh, we would like to elaborate and test explanations on the you know, origins, form, functionings, and effects of differentiated integration, especially looking at, again, this is part of our attempt to open up this concept of differentiated integration, looking at different venues, you know, practical institutions, uh, concrete institutions where this happens, um, different levels of you know, formalization of differentiated integration, but also different stages of governance, you know, from the you know, initiation to the uh, implementation of, of policy. Uh, of course, we would also like to, uh, uh, resulting from that, uh, uh, we will aim to be able to give policy prescriptions and formulate policy scenarios on, the, on DI, uh, the leverage on theoretical as well as practical knowledge, and as I assume is true of all the all the projects presented here today, we also have a dissemination uh, mission. Um, now, one thing that uh, you know is already in our acronym, you know, this idea of effectiveness accountability means that these are the two main normative anchors of this project. So, in all this, uh, throughout these four goals, we. We'll We'll have those two uh, ideas in the back of our mind, and uh, you know that we try to um, uh, we try to say something about as as we do our research. Uh, practically, the organism you know, this uh, these goals we try to achieve these goals uh, through eleven uh, working packages. Uh, now, two of course are as usually happens in this project some more uh, organizational and more about the. The overhead of the project. Uh, nine of them are substantive, and roughly they are divided into four, five blocks that you can see here. So the first three are very conceptual, theoretical, uh, and historical. Uh, the second three are uh, about policy areas. We are quite straightforward in dividing uh, our research in the second block uh, into three policy areas: you know, economic and monetary integration, foreign and defense uh, uh, policy. Uh, and uh, let's say the area of freedom and justice, including migration, immigration, and, and these issues. And this comes from you know, um, a bit of reflection that we did uh, with some in some work that serves as the background for EU IDEA, in which we um, had this um, notion that differentiation is. Uh, it might be good or bad, of course, but it's probably inevitable at this point. Uh, but uh, one thing that normatively you might want to do is to kind of limit it because uh, in order not to make the EU unmanageable from a, uh, from a practical point of view. So we thought that uh, the, 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 it might be useful to think about three institutional anchors, or three you know, sectors uh, uh, that might anchor uh, dimensions of differentiation, and these are the three. So for each of them, 
uh, you have uh, a concrete institutional anchor. You know, you have the euro, the Schengen area, and now the PESCO also in defense policy. Um, the third block is actually a work package all on Brexit. Uh, we uh, are creating, we have created this observatory on Brexit. So we'll try, and we have been uh, doing already quite some work as EU idea, uh, but also, of course, uh, as uh, channeling the work of all our partners into this observatory. So if you go on our website, which I'll, you know, the address of which I'll give you uh, in a second, uh, you'll see that there's quite already quite some work in that, on uh, our dedicated page. Um, we have uh, uh, another work package on uh, national preferences, which is going to be mostly about surveys. Uh, and then finally, the final work package, which will try to sum up uh, the Let's say it's, the, it's about the prescriptive part of the project, right? Of course, each work package will have something to say uh, as, 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 as far as pres prescription goes, but uh, the um, uh, work package line is particularly devoted to that. Uh, in terms of deliverables, again, uh, it's very, uh, very concretely, EU IDEA will produce you know, a lot of them, like uh, all the other projects. And this is the breakdown of, the, of, of, of our main deliverables. As you can see, there will be a lot of uh, policy papers and policy briefs. And you will see why, in a se if you haven't seen already, why looking at our consortium, I'll, I'll underline that in the next slide. Uh, but we also, I want to also highlight that we'll have a couple of data sets, mostly about public and elite opinion on differentiated integration, uh, and a number of multimedia products, which we already started producing, and also connected to the Brexit part, we're also uh, setting up this, uh, this contest for students about uh, you know, producing a Brexit video, a Brexit theme video. We'll see what happens and what we'll receive, and we have an award attached to that. <laughs> I'm not sure if there is any money to, to be won, but <laughs> we'll see. Uh, and I'm really curious about the ideas that people come up with. Uh, now, the last slide I would like to highlight. So here we have three projects uh, on pretty much the same theme. Uh, this theme is very broad, but as you can imagine, the, a bunch of the research questions that we are uh, tackling are the same. So there will be some overlap. And if you go to our two <coughs> websites, you will see that there are some uh, broad uh, questions that uh, keep returning, and understandably so. Uh, but at the same time, of course, you will also see that there are things that differentiate us from uh, one another. Now, I was trying to uh, kind of summarize what sets us apart, what I believe in them. Maybe, you know, uh, if you guys don't agree, we can have uh, a chat about that. But I think my view of things as they are now is that we are uh, different from the other two projects uh, in a couple of uh, respects. Uh, first one, f uh, the first one is that, uh, like I said, we are adopting a quite a broad uh, definition of differentiating integration, and we're doing so because we think that uh, that could give us the space to experiment a little bit at this stage, which is, you know, at the end of the day, what these projects are often are about. Uh, and we try, we'll try to do so in a couple of ways, maybe more. But for now, we envision doing so. Uh, um, for example, by uh, by um, engaging comparisons between the EU and other systems. I know that you guys are, are, are doing that as well. Um, uh, for example, we have uh, in one of our work packages there will be one paper that tries to compare. Uh, differentiated integration in the EU with the, uh, other uh, regional, with ex the experience of other regional organizations and see if we can draw some lessons from that. Uh, the second, uh, the sec oh, uh, sorry, uh, and another thing that I wanted to highlight because this is what I'm working on at the moment is that 
uh, we'll also try to uh, look at whether we can look at differentiation in an, uh, uh, as a as, it, as regards to non-state experiences, um, you know, differentiated integration is usually, uh, or actually pretty much always, taken as a state-based concept. Uh, it's differentiated uh, integration, where integration is taken as a, something driven by states, and of which states are uh, the main parts. Uh, but we're now we're wondering at this point whether it might make sense to actually also look at subnational experiences, you know, networks and organizations, and whether those can be seen through the lens of differentiated integration, and whether they have, they might have some interesting connection with the more traditionally defined differentiated integration. Uh, so that's part of this conceptual, let's say, experimentation that we want to do. Second point, uh, what sets us apart is as, uh, and this is where I refer back to the consortium, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have, uh, we have a lot of think tanks uh, in the consortium, and that's uh, something we, uh, we, that is different between us and, and the other two projects. Now, I represent one of the universities, but it's only three of them, uh, and then we have 11 between think tanks and research centers that are more, let's say, policy-oriented, so to speak. Now, that, you know, you can see that as a bad or a good thing. You know, it's, uh, of course, it, it just makes the project a bit different. Uh, in, in that we uh, will, you know, be, let's say, we'll be a bit closer, or many of our partners will be a bit closer to practical policy making, you know, both physically because they interact a lot with, uh, uh, with, uh, with policy makers, but also in their, let's say, modus operandi, in their mindset. So. Uh, that might give us, uh, uh, hopefully, some added value on that side. Um, and finally, like I said before, we have a very specific and very explicit focus on Brexit as one of the main, uh, probably the main development in the area of differentiated integration to the extent that um, this, will, uh, this will affect uh, DI, which seems uh, most likely uh, at this point. And, uh, and we want to, of course, um, we want to, of course, reflect on that and see if we can um, also give our contribution to uh, our normative and prescriptive contribution to that. Now, I'll leave it at this, and uh, uh, thank you for your attention, and I invite everybody to uh, check us out on the web. We have a nice website, and we are active on the social media, Facebook and Twitter especially. I believe we also have a YouTube channel because we, we do produce videos, but you find the videos on the website anyway. Thank you very much. Thanks. Our third speaker is Susan Rotman of Al-Jayin University. I'll say first, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been really uh, interesting to learn about the bridge network. I think it's going to be a very valuable project, and I look forward to following it and contributing if I can in the future. Um, I titled my presentation An Anthropologist on the project that I'm going to talk about and EU migration policy. Just to be clear about my background in case any political scientists or legal scholars uh, keep your questions more gentle towards me, perhaps. Um, but I, am in, I was interested that Ian yesterday talked about differentiated non-governance in relation to EU migration policy. Um, and the relationship between differenti differentiated integration and multi-level governance, perhaps we can have a more of a discussion uh, with people. So don't hold back, but just be aware you're talking to an anthropologist. Um, so I want to talk about the project, uh, RESPOND. This, this is the EU Horizon 2020 project that this work is a part of. And then some early results. It, 
and also this is a little bit my perspective, maybe not necessarily representing all of Respond on EU migration policy. Um, of course, this is only forced migration in our project. So uh, refugee migration, uh, there, there were, I was glad to see that there were some other papers talking about the internal migration of EU citizens and or economic migration. So this is not the focus of Respond. I'm only talking about these three issues. So border management in, in terms of uh, the external border of the EU, also internal borders of the countries. Uh, the common European asylum system and externalization and the EU-Turkey statement, they're all actually highly interrelated. Um, and one affects the other and so, uh, but this just seemed like a good way to sort of group these as different effects. Um, and my own specialty is in Turkey, so this is what I know more about, but I'll try to present um, a little bit um, some general points. So respond, multi-level governance of mass migration in Europe and beyond. We're right at the halfway of the project, so we've collected our data, but we only have about uh, a third of our reports out. Um, it's um, 14 partner institutions. It's led by Uppsala University. I'm not the coordinator. I'm one of the PIs on the project. Um, we have uh, 12 universities and two NGOs. Um, and many, many disciplines. Um, I'll tell, tell you in a second all of the methods that are being used, uh, but it's quite diverse and uh, a large project. Uh, we are looking at in these uh, 11 countries. So the idea is the Eastern Mediterranean route, the so-called Eastern Mediterranean migration route, and we're looking in uh, the, so again, these terms are problematic, but source, transit, and destination countries. So the idea is Iraq, Lebanon, and Turkey could be either source or transit, and then Italy, Greece, Poland, Hungary, and Austria, transit or destination, and then uh, Germany, UK, and Sweden are usually seen as the so-called destination countries. Um, so the project wants to understand the governance of mass migration at macro, meso, and micro levels through this comparative research. So by macro, we're talking about international um, and national policies and actors, international organizations. Uh, MESO, we understand, could either be national NGOs or international NGOs who operate in a you know, municipal, regional level, let's say, local um, city administrators, uh, local NGOs, uh, migrant NGOs. And then the micro level is the refugee point of view or the migrant point of view. So we are collecting data about all three levels and trying to understand what's happening in terms of governance. And the goal is, of course, to solve the problem of uh, migration governance. So um, we'll see about that. Um, enhancing the capacity and policy coherence of the EU, its member states, and third countries. Um, it sounds a lot easier before you start to do the research than uh, when you're in the middle of it. Um, in terms of the thematic fields, um, again, it's everything. Um, I think a good way to get an EU project is to promise to do everything, and then they really are excited about it. Um, border management, refugee protection regimes, reception, integration, conflicting Europeanization. So it's the whole stream of the migrant journey is the idea. So from borders to their legal processes, and then finally even including integration. Um, in the different countries, and then how does this affect Europeanization? 
Um, the methodology, again, it's every single method that exists in qualitative research, as far as I know. Uh, legal policy analysis, discourse analysis, interviews, over 750 interviews with stakeholders and refugees. So I don't know about the other projects that have been pre presented, but I would say that our project is very empirical. Uh, it's collecting a lot of data. Um, so it's a really a lot of interviews, um, as well as a <coughs> survey in Turkey and Sweden. Um, maybe because the time is a little bit limited, I'll just skip over the impact, but um, it has a, we have a lot of different impacts um, from a film to an art exhibit to um, not a contest. I like that idea. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, but a lot of different things. So um, I wanted to talk about these three uh, policy areas. Sorry that the slide um, looks like it got messed up a little bit. Um, but just kind of the um, development of border management or what some people call integrated border management in the EU. So starting with the coordination and cooperation of member states with the ideas of freedom of movement and human rights, the various treaties about Schengen and developing that, and then an increasing security focus, I think is what we can see, increasing ideas about uh, the EU as a policing body, the idea of smart borders, surveillance databases, so even now creating a Coast Guard. So um, this is increasing uh, a changing way of thinking about borders. Um, then the idea of cooperating with external states, so externalizing the border. This also relates to the third area that I was going to talk about. Um, so making deals in terms of that. And then finally, increasing the competence of the EU over member state borders, which we see in the hotspot approach of um, in Greece and Italy, where the EU is actually going uh, to, uh, is having a much more active role in a member state's border for, to some extent. Uh, so how can we evaluate this? On the one hand, uh, there's the invocation of wanting to protect refugees of human rights. Uh, to some extent, there has been a reduction in arrival numbers since the so-called crisis of 2015. Uh, but we know that there are still deaths at sea happening every day. Um, there's still smuggling. And then there's the question of whether migrants are in safe countries now, um, either in the EU or outside of the EU, whether Turkey is a safe country. Um, Hotspots approach, I think, most scholars agree that it was not a successful approach. It has not really relieved the pressure on those states. Uh, there's a lot of evidence of rights violations of refugees. Um, it's very chaotic. Um, recently, it was just reported in the news, you know, there was a fire, somebody died. There's a lot of deaths. They're really overloaded, especially in Greece. So um, I think that's a serious problem. Um, so we can say that migration in some sense has pushed for common member state interest in EU border integration. So in that sense, it has somehow uh, increased, the, increased some kind of integration or agreement about the uh, importance of strengthening the external border of the EU. Uh, but has this happened in a fair way, at least for the southern member states? That's what I was talking about a little bit yesterday. Uh, the the frontline, so-called frontline states have a lot more pressure um, and have had a lot more uh, to deal with um, than some of the northern states. Um, of course, there are still a lot of internal border sovereignty issues 
uh, conflict between, um, you know, there's a, just a general conflict uh, which we could talk about more between the member states who have uh, agreed to recognize the um, Geneva Convention and non-refoulement, not sending migrants back to unsafe countries, and yet in practice, um, this is happening a lot. Uh, so, um, yeah, this kind of relates to the second uh, issue, the common European asylum system. So most, most of you probably know that it's one of the um, one of the main areas, the Dublin regulation, migrants are sent back to the first country in which they entered the EU uh, in order to do asylum determination. In practice, um, not as many are sent back actually, but um, this, this system has created a lot of um, instability or difficulty in the system. Okay, so um, yeah, just so you probably know the history um, Italy and Greece stopped fingerprinting, sent migrants on. This led to conflict with Hungary, Germany, and also kind of the breakdown or the, the of, of the Schengen system. Um, and um, so this crisis seems to show more the weakness of European integration. There seems to be no incentive for member states to cooperate on this issue. They see it as a zero-sum game. Um, there's also other problems. Uh, why is first entry anyway part of the, uh, why is this the criteria? This shouldn't be the criteria for determining, for being able to have the right to claim refugee status. Um, and of course there are negotiations for a Dublin Four for the, uh, you know, uh, reworking of this, but also a lot of opposition to this. So this is an area where uh, there's a lot of conflict uh, between EU member states. Um, I think we see in our project that multi-level governance is not working at all within the states in, in, in a, any of these issues, and especially um, in the issues of protection, um, integration. There's complex, rapidly changing legislation. Many mm -hmm. actors are involved, uh, sometimes with overlapping competencies, sometimes with gaps. Um, in general, we see increase, increasing restriction of the rights of migrants, and migrants are generally in this kind of uh, legal limbo where they don't know what's going to happen, and even the rights that they have at one point may be taken away. Um, and then finally, the EU-Turkey statement. Um, there's many problems with this, uh, which you probably somewhat know about, aside from it's not being a legally binding agreement anyway in the first place. Um, but um, it's the idea uh, that uh, Turkey will prevent some migration in exchange for uh, funding. Um, and, um, you know, the EU says publicly that this is, is a success because the numbers have been reduced. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of questions about whether Turkey is a safe third country, uh, if there are other factors that might have reduced the numbers. And um, visa-free travel for Turks didn't materialize, so this is also potentially going to, you know, Erdogan is always threatening that this deal may be revoked. <laughs> Not to mention that the situation in Turkey is quite different today with um, the, the government uh, now deporting and cracking down on migrants, so we expect that the numbers will increase now of Turks, uh, I mean, of, of migrants from Turkey going to Europe. Um, okay, I don't know if I have just one more minute. Um, I just wanted you to... Have two and a half. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry. Um, so just to give a little anthropological spin here, 
um, a human face on this EU policy. I thought I could just even do it with one story is so indicative of these larger um, issues. A Syrian woman in uh, Istanbul, a single mother, divorcee, a victim of domestic violence. She's living with her nine-year-old son. So if we look at her in terms of her, um, what are her rights or what's her situation under EU migration policy or international law or in general, if she was in another state, she would be considered a refugee, probably. She would have that opportunity. Most Syrians have been somewhere in the 90% range of getting refugee status in European countries. But uh, in Turkey, she just has temporary protection status. This comes with much more limited rights, and it can be removed at any time. Um, meanwhile, Syrians are not eligible for uh, resettlement with the UN unless they have some kind of vulnerability criteria, which is extremely problematic. People are trying to become vulnerable. It's sort of like creating this like weird thing. So this is one of her quotes. Somebody told me to go and bring a medical report saying that I have a back problem or some type of disease, but I don't want to go. I don't want to lie. So e even though uh, by some standards, a single mother um, uh, and her experiences would be considered vulnerable, but it's not vulnerable uh, enough in some uh, sense. Uh, she could also potentially be re eligible for family reunification. This is also a right under EU law. Um, however, and this is because her, she has three sons who fled the sea route through uh, to from Turkey to Greece, um, but when they were in uh, they eventually went from Greece to Germany and said that they were unaccompanied minors with their parents were deceased so that they could avoid having the possibility of potentially being deported. Um, also, there was a, Germany placed a moratorium on family unification. Uh, so, um, and uh, the other point is she doesn't even want to move to Germany. She just wants to visit her son. So if you look at the life of a person, you really see uh, how they are not able to, um, you know, just even just live a normal life. And then she is also not able to get the so-called EU financial assistance that Syrian uh, migrants in Turkey get uh, because she has sons in Germany, which the Turkish government is aware of, and therefore they say that she should be supported by her sons. Um, so I would say that the rights of refugees and human rights relatively are taking last place um, there's an overwhelming insecurity of migrants if you look at EU policy. Um, it's some new orders, but more fragmentation and multi-level governance is not working. Okay. Okay, finally, uh, Bruno De Vita of the University, uh, European University Institution. So good morning. I'm, I'm standing here, but I don't have a PowerPoint actually. So uh, I can make PowerPoints though. <laughs> what? On the spot now? No, no, I have to, I need a lot of time for that. Um, the, the problem is that whenever I make a PowerPoint and go to a conference, nobody else has a PowerPoint. And whenever I decide not to have a PowerPoint, then everybody else has one. So I, I, I still have to adjust a little bit to when these things are expected and what, when not. So I don't have one. And I'm, I now go back, of course, to the to the first two speakers because I'm representing here this, the third of the three research projects that were funded by the Horizon program to deal with differentiated integration. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the project and also a little bit about my own research within that context. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit only about the project because I could easily say after uh, the previous speakers, after John Eric especially, but also after Pier Domenico, ours is the same, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly looks the same if you, if you just look at the document, you know, the document that we send in to the, the European Union, to the Commission, and which is then approved. They look really, really very similar in, 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 certain, in terms of structure because they all you know, are divided in work packages. You know, that's one of these mystical words, you know, work packages, in which a number of people work together on some topic. There's lots of deliverables also. We also have lots of deliverables, M many more even than you, uh, Pierre Domenico, in your project. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and of course, it has to end up in policy recommendations. Really important, because why is the European Union funding researchers to do research in order to come up with useful resu results. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a tension here, I should say, because I can understand why the, the, the institutions want useful results for, for results for their policies, but academics are not necessarily interested in that. They're interested in doing scientific research, whether or not it will lead to uh, useful recommendations. But since this is part of the game, of course, our project also has a set of recommendations at the end. I'm sure there will be useful recommendations, although I don't know yet which ones. And then, of course, there is the diffusion element. You know, there's this element of bringing the results of what you're doing closer to the citizens. So all these things are very similar. Um, I would like to, to point out maybe a few differences might be, which might be exist between our, our three projects. Now, first of all, I should say how our project is called. I always keep forgetting. It's called Integrating Diversity in the European Union, in, in DVU. It's a project coordinated by the European University Institute. So I'm part of the coordinating team, but I'm not a coordinator myself. So the coordinator at EUI is Bridget Laffan, a well-known Irish political scientist who has also been extremely active in commenting on Brexit recently, I think. Um, and together, the second coordinator is not based at EUI, but in <laughs> Zurich is called Frank Schimmelfennig, and he's a political scientist who's written a lot about differentiated integration. Now, both coordinators are political scientists, and that's one of the things I would like to highlight in our project, is that if you look at the disciplinary um, distribution, I think it's, it's rather different from the other two in the sense that there is a predominance, I would say, of political scientists in, in my project, in our project, with smaller groups than of political philosophers who think more about the normative dimension, and also lawyers. So I'm myself, I'm a legal scholar, so we have a group of lawyers who also work on, on the legal dimension. Now, in terms of the, of the object of what we're studying, I think there is a lot of similarity because we, I think all three consortia tend to define differentiated integration in rather broad terms. Um, and, but I would say that within our project, we sort of, there's a division of labor between people who look at differentiated integration in a more narrow sense and those who look at it in a broader sense. Now, what do I mean? With more, the more narrow sense, what I mean here is differentiated integration of the variable geometry sort. That's how I would call it. That is to say, situations or areas of EU uh, policy, I should say, 
where not all member states participate in making the policies and therefore also are not bound by those policies. So this is the traditional, the classical opt-out situation. No? So Ireland doesn't participate in Schengen. Uh, it participates half and half in asylum, but it does participate in the euro, and unla unlike Sweden, for example. So these, these are, this is the variable geometry type of differentiated integration, the narrow in the narrow sense. So some countries of the EU, some member states, simply do not participate in important areas of EU policy. The other form, the much broader form, uh, is what I would call flexibility. That is to say that you have policies, European policies, in which all the member states do participate, actually. But in the, the way these policies are implemented, are applied, you find a lot of flexibility, a lot of differentiation between the different countries in the ways they are allowed by the EU to implement the policy, or in the ways they do implement it in different ways without being allowed. So when we were talking about migration disintegration yesterday, that's what is happening here. So a lot of these rules are applicable to all the member states, but some of them simply don't apply them. And then there's an issue of, you could say, undesirable flexibility. So you have this broad and, and narrow definition of differentiated integration. The project, our project, is also dealing both with internal and external differentiation. But I have my, personally a bit of a difficulty with the notion of external differentiation. That is to say, differentiation in relation to non-member states, mm -hmm. third countries. That's what, what is meant by this. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about it, if you think about the external relations of the European Union, they are differentiated by nature. Because obviously, the European Union deals with other countries all in a separate way. No two countries are dealt with exactly in the same way. So if you take a very broad definition of external differentiation, you would have to look at all the EU's external relations, which is, of course, not really meaningful. You have to narrow down that notion of external differentiation. That is to say, you have to limit it to the relations that the EU establishes with some member states which go beyond the traditional you know, foreign policy. That is to say, I think you need to, to look for situations where third countries, like Norway would be a good example, actually do participate in EU policy making to some extent, and are also taking over whole you know, big, big chunks of EU law in, in, their, in their domestic uh, legal system. So some countries really qualify, some relations qualify as external differentiation, but others don't. But that's, that's in passing. So let me then um, move on and say a little bit for the remaining minutes about my own role in, in this. So I'm coordinating the work package, which looks at um, so-called legal feasibility and constitutional acceptability of differentiated integration. So what we do in, in, in our group, it's mostly lawyers, but not exclusively, is we look at the legal dimension. And so th that part of the project is, in a sense, closer to what the European Commission wants, namely, you know, recommendations <coughs> for the future. Because we, what I'm doing here is to look especially at legal feasibility. You know? Given the fact that there is a demand for differentiated integration, that there's lots of people who, who say that's th that's the future for the EU, that's one of the future scenarios, to, to, you know, to go back to what uh, Federico was saying <coughs> yesterday, one of the future scenarios of the EU is to have more differentiated integration. Then one of the questions is, 
you know, apart from whether we want it, whether it's good or not, one of the questions is what is possible, legally speaking, under the current treaties? Okay, if you change the European treaties, you can do anything you want. But we know that changing the European treaties has become almost impossible, or at least major changes of the European treaties. So the, the situation which we are facing today is that treaty revisions are not on the agenda. Therefore, the question is how much differentiation can we have, how much more differentiation can we have than we have today, given the, con the legal contexts, the legal constraints of the current treaties. And so it's, it's in, in, in that context that I'm, um, yes, that I'm looking at some of these legal constraints. <clears throat> now, if we look at what is available in terms of uh, instruments for differentiated integration today to be used for new uh, projects, let's say, there's essentially two of them. One instrument is what is called enhanced cooperation. That is to say that within the European Union, a group of countries go ahead with cooperating in a certain field um, without the others. That's one of, the, of the, the two main mechanisms. So it's embedded in the EU system, but it only involves a limited group of countries, the willing, the willing or able ones. And the second option, the second very different legal scenario is for a group of countries to go outside the system, the EU system, and to set up cooperation under a separate agreement, a separate international agreement, like they have done in the past for Schengen in the early days, or like they've done for creating the European stability mechanism in the context of, of the Euro crisis. Now, if we look at these two, these two possibilities, both of them have advantages and disadvantages from a legal and also political point of view. Now, if you look at enhanced cooperation, that sounds good, you know, because here what you're saying is that the EU itself, the EU institutional system, allows for some countries to go ahead, uh, even if the others don't want to do so. And we've had some examples of that already, but so far the examples have always been ad hoc. There have been specific projects where a, a proposal for EU legislation was facing the veto of one or more countries. So it applies in areas where EU policy is done unanimously, has to be done unanimously. So faced with the veto of one or two countries, the others say, okay, let's do enhanced cooperation instead. They've done it for patent regulation, for example, also for the recognition of divorce uh, judgments, so for very specific projects. Now the question is, can you use that mechanism also for a broader package of cooperation? Can, it, can you use it for setting up a vanguard of country, a core group of countries who would cooperate in a large number of fields together without the others? Now, for that, I think this mechanism is not very well suited. Why not? Because enhanced cooperation, as it is regulated now, is presented as a last resort mechanism. That is to say, for each project, you first have to try to get the project done and agreed within the normal rules of the EU with everybody on board. And it's only if it doesn't work that you can then, that a group of countries can go ahead with enhanced cooperation. Secondly, Every country is entitled to join, okay? So it's not, to come back to what Federico was saying here, this is not closer cooperation by invitation. You don't choose your partners. You have to accept everybody. And so for that very reason, 
this is not an instrument which is suited for creating a vanguard of countries, a close group of countries who would go ahead together in a large number of fields, because they cannot <laughs> simply cannot exclude the others. So if there is an in initiative for saying, let's do something more on migration, you know, on integration of migrants, a new initiative. Okay, a group of countries who want to do that, they cannot exclude the others from joining and say, oh, we also want to be on board and we want to basically sabotage your project uh, by being on board. That's what enhanced cooperation is about. Now, if we compare that with the other one, and I will finish on that, <coughs> going outside would then be the alternative. Okay, so you leave the EU framework, a group of countries set up cooperation outside under some other international agreement. Now, the advantage there is that there you can act by invitation. There you can say, you know, we, France and Germany and the Benelux, we want to do something together and we don't want all these other awkward countries to be on board. Fine. That's the advantage. The disadvantages, of course, of that solution are obvious. One is that you abandon the constitutional framework of the EU. So you abandon this tradition of semi-democratic decision-making that we have in the EU, the guarantees of the rule of law that we have, the guarantees of judicial protection that the EU system allows. You are over there, out there in the wild world of international law and diplomatic relations. That's one disadvantage. The other major disadvantage is that in such cooperation outside the treaty system, you cannot agree anything that would be in breach of the existing EU law. So you cannot do this to change EU <coughs> law. You can only use this instrument to do extra things, you know, new things. For example, the defense initiative that you also mentioned, Philip, yesterday, a new defense initiative. Okay, the EU doesn't do anything there, so it's possible to do it through some extra agreement. But you cannot use that mechanism to change the existing EU policies. And now we have existing EU policies on almost everything today. Okay? So if you want to change EU policies, if you want to have a better climate change policy or migration policy, basically you have to act within the system. The Post-Brexit Europe podcast is a product of the Bridge Network, which is a Jean Monnet network funded by the European Union's Erasmus Plus program. It is recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute with Catherine Martin as the producer. My name is Ian Cooper. Thank you for listening.